Welcome all to another episode of Concessions. This week, we're happy to bring you a chat on one of my personal favorite anime films, Paprika. Paprika may stand not as only one of my favorite animes, but also one of my very favorite films within the medium of animation. So when I had heard that Jared hadn't seen it when we started this project about a year back, I had to throw this on the list. While we recorded this a couple months back, I wanted to release this now because Paprika will actually be playing in many theaters around the country this week, so it seemed like a great moment to get the word out that this film was absolutely worth seeing on the big screen. If you've been having a good time listening to Jared and I delve into the maximalist magic that is the dreaming subconscious, please feel free to drop a like, thumbs up, comment, subscribe, or anything of that nature. Also, you can find Jared on threads at Jared Concessions and myself on X at Dan Concedes, where you can interact with us in the most true space that does exist in our current world, which is the internet. As always, thank you so much for bending an ear our way. And without further ado, let's venture into Satoshi Kone's hyper-reality with Paprika. Welcome to Concessions. I'm Dan. And I'm Jared. And on this episode of the pod, we're going to talk about Inception. The good kind, with more boobs. Yeah, we're going to talk about Inception, but Japanese, animated, contains boobs, and has a lot more on its mind than (laughs) the actual movie. And a lot more just everything going on in there. A lot more in about half the runtime. (laughs) before we hop on into our spicy conversation uh jared what are you sipping on yeah this is going to be a running theme for a few episodes depending on the order of their release but i'm still over here with my watermelon white claw (laughs) it's only 100 calories it's gluten-free it's five percent alcohol by volume only two grams of sugar and you know what they don't sacrifice is great taste white claw try one today And please sponsor us, White Claw. I will follow you on threads, and I'll send you the link to every episode in which Dan and I mention your delicious, (laughs) delicious beverage. Did I mention it's only 100 calories per can? 100 calories per can? I can't believe it. Oh, man. And they use every single one of those calories to its full effect. (laughs) Uh, Anyways, I am drinking um, Trader Joe's finest, Charles Schwab. Uh, but out here in California, it's not a two buck chuck. I think it's all the way up to a four buck chuck. Thanks, Obama. Wow. So it, you should put a little sticker of Joe Biden pointing up at the price. Yeah, that, I, did, I that. did that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, your standard mid-level Cabernet that reminds me of visiting my parents because they drink the stuff by the gallon. Oh, that chuck. Him and Joe got together and have Conspired. provided... Yeah, they got together to provide so many low-income households with red wine. (laughs) (laughs) To keep the masses down, to keep them complacent. Joe, what are you up to? We're on to you. Oh, no, I'm not talking about Joe Biden. I'm talking about Trader Joe's. Not not Trader Joe's. (laughs) Yeah, we are a different kind of podcast now. (laughs) For the love of fucking God. (laughs) But uh, as we as we await the election results in about a year at this point, uh, what have you been watching, reading, enjoying? Yeah, I think I'll keep on brand or on theme tonight. Talk about a 
Japanese animated feature film that I watched for the first time in some years this week. I have a four-year-old daughter, and just this past week, she has this little like handbag. Um, it's basically like a purse that some of our family friends uh, got for her as a present for when she plays dress up, and she's been putting her toys in it and walking up to me and like spilling them onto the floor and being like delivery for daddy special delivery <laughs> for daddy it's toys and i was like oh you're, are you a delivery girl and she was like yeah I'm delivering toys and i said child i have got the movie for you <laughs> so we watched kiki's delivery service that i hadn't seen since maybe my early 20s and in my early 20s i remember thinking I guess this is cute, but whatever. And now that I have little ones, oh, I love Kiki's Delivery Service. It is <laughs> so cute. And we watched the English dub because the two-year-old and the four-year-old, neither of them can read fast enough to follow along with subtitles. So, or at all. And <laughs> Phil Hartman, the late, great Phil Hartman plays the little black kitty cat with sort of a chip on his shoulder. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's such a fine, fine voice actor. Uh, rest in peace, Phil Hartman. He was definitely a highlight of some of the early episodes of The Simpsons. His Saturday Night Live characters were awesome. And he really, really brings it in Kiki's Delivery Service. And that was before Disney took over and started um, sort of producing the the American localizations. And so I think it was back when Fox was still doing that, which makes sense because he worked for Fox at the time doing the Simpsons. Right. And yeah, Kiki's delivery service is just one of those Miyazaki films where it's just pure, pure, uh, child friendly, cute fantasy. And it still has some conversation starters, but they were all pretty appropriate even for a four year old. And I love it. It's so good. I think it's kind of right up there with with Totoro as far as just pure magical for children Studio Ghibli movies. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, very different than the Japanese feature film that we're going to discuss tonight. <laughs> what What about you, Dan? What's something that you've watched, read or otherwise enjoyed this week? Yeah, mine, um, I guess... It you children could read it, but I'd be really surprised they did. Um, this week I finished uh, In Search of or Swan's Way by Marcel Proust. So I mean, if you have a, a four year old that can read Proust, then let him go for it. I suppose. Yeah, I see why this book is regularly uh, lauded as one of the best modernist masterpieces that's ever been put to type. Um, perhaps one of the uh, the best examples of literature in the 20th century, like it constantly gets brought up as that. And so for a long time, it's one of those books where I knew it was dense. I knew it was going to take a lot of time and effort to get through and to like fully appreciate. And so it had been sitting on my shelf for a while. Actually, fun story that my mom, when she was in Paris, she bought it for me uh, at a bookstore in Paris. So got a French book in Paris from my mom. Very nice of her. So that's what prompted me then to then finally pick it up. Um, yeah, and it definitely lives up to the way people speak about it. I mean, it's it talks about the you know the fragile nature of memory, the way that we take ideals and put them onto reality for good or ill, the fact or how we narrativeize life, how or he's 
famous for the idea of intrude, not intrusive memories. I think that's kind of the term, but like there's a scene, it's kind of from like Ratatouille is the, 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 the pop culture reference that really draws from it when like the, the critic eats the Ratatouille and he has these memories that just come flushing in. That's yeah, from yeah. Swan's way where uh, the adult narrator eats a, a Madeline cookie. And the same thing happens in the way he describes like how, you know, this happens to anyone where you'll be, Something, some stimulation of some sort will happen in a memory you're not even thinking about. All of a sudden, just comes rushing in. Yeah. And the thing is, what was so beautiful about that prose too is like, then he tries to recreate it, and the moment you start trying to oh, do that, no. then it's gone. You can't do it anymore. Um, oh, profoundly sad. It is. Oh, this is a profoundly yeah. melancholy book because then that's just the open. It's split into three sections, and the middle section is the main narrative, which is discussing this like sort of aristocratic, slightly idiosyncratic guy who falls in love with uh, a woman below his station, but Uh-oh. also a woman who might be of ill repute. Oh, okay. Like, but you're also seeing the way that his, like, ego gets in the way of him, like, essentially lying to himself and her in order to make this love work in the way that it kind of ebbs and flows between them, how they meet each other at certain points, go like, their love goes apart at different points, it kind of ends in this really funny bit at the end where she kind of has always been fairly upfront about who she is. She's like, yeah, you know, I'm like, kind of like to fuck around. It's fun. Like, I'm just, I'm a French, I'm a French lady, a French aristocratic lady. I have affairs. And like, he just like, because he has a certain vision of her, he just can't see that. And finally, there's a scene at the end of the the novel where like, basically uh, an anonymous friend of his writes him a letter. It's like, not only is she sleeping around, but she sleeps with women and that's when it like really oh, comes tumbling down my god <laughs> and, scandal like, just the like the the psychological accuracy in which proust writes about like how pride and love and envy and jealousy and like and actual you know senses of nobility and like all the good and the bad and human beings just whirling together all at the same time very good stuff uh, highly recommend if you have about two months to kill yeah, yeah. I I keep getting hung up on the story of your mom being oh. in Paris and buying that for you. I'm just imagining her like sweet middle-aged Midwestern lady being like, "Do you have Proust in English?" You have the Proust? That yeah. Proust <laughs> And like the guy working behind the counter smoking a cigarette smoking a cigarette sipping on an espresso little tiny mustache beret being like we like in english all like put off but but he has to do his job and sell it to your mom you know (laughs) at first i thought you said smoking on a baguette and that's an even better (laughs) you know typical frenchman his name's pierre he smoke he's smoking a baguette i just see like a giant cuban cigar but it's a baguette (laughs) oh that's a good joke i (laughs) I'm guessing Pepe Le Pew did that at one point. Oh, no, like no way that someone hasn't made that visual gag. But anyways, uh, let's leave France and let's uh, head on over to uh, Tokyo. Or I don't even know if this was produced in Tokyo, but Japan. Anyways, uh, what we're talking about here is 2006's Paprika, directed by Satoshi Kon, written mostly by Satoshi Kon, but also uh, co-writer on it is Seishi Minakami. And it's based on a novel by Yasutuka Tsutsui. It's going to be my guess at that one. And composed by Susumu Hirawasa, 
uh, who Susumu Hirawasa has also collaborated with Satoshi Kon in other stuff like Tokyo Godfathers and the, the TV show that Satoshi Kon did, which is Paranoia Agent. And you even texted me unprompted too. I'm like, oh my God, I forgot how good this soundtrack is. So I really thought it was important to bring up the composer of this one. Yeah, I, it, this soundtrack is so good that I brought it up in an episode for another movie that we already published. Um, I, I bring up the soundtrack for Paprika in our episode about Spirited Away. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there couldn't be more different soundtracks, too. Oh, no, yeah. That one is just beautiful melodies, kind of traditional orchestral instruments and piano. And this is just utter madness. Just pure neon lights flashing right into your ears. Yeah, some of it is like played in reverse to make you feel weird. Very surreal, just like the movie that surrounds it. Yeah, it's so, it's so good. Um, but yeah, so we have actually, this was one of our earliest picks when we even started this whole project. Uh, when all this was, was like, oh, we're both going to watch a movie and we're, we're going to write little letters to one another. We're going to be pen pals. And uh, when that, that's what this initially was going to be. It was like something of a blog or like an active dialogue sort of thing. And this was an early pick of mine. And we probably talked about it uh, a little less than a year ago now. And I, if, correct me if I'm wrong. That was the first time you had seen it back then, right? That is correct. Previous to almost exactly one year ago when you first asked me to watch this movie with you, I had only seen Perfect Blue by Cohn. And I don't know why I had only seen Perfect Blue. Perfect Blue is my favorite animated Japanese feature film. And uh, you're just like, that's enough. I don't need it anymore. Wildly influential on Hollywood filmmaking and just Western filmmaking, just to a ridiculous extent. I mean, you could probably make the argument that the work of... Miyazaki has influenced Western animation to a greater extent, but that one film, Perfect Blue by Satoshi Kon, has influenced just American and you know English-speaking auteurism uh, a lot. And for some reason, I'd never seen another one of his movies and watched Paprika a year ago and thought it was good, but not great. I think I was very unfairly wanting it to be Perfect Blue. I had some some criticisms for it that I wrote in my little letter to you, Dan. And watching it again now, well, do you want me to get into how my perception has changed? Or Yeah, please, please. Okay, the first time I watched it a year ago, I had a pretty harsh criticism that besides Detective Kanakawa, none of the other characters are nearly as well-developed. And I was mostly just wrong about that. Mm. Really, that was very surface level what it actually is is that kanakawa is given a lot more explicit backstory than anyone else but so much is revealed about all of the other characters through the actual propulsive present action without many you know utterances about who they were before the story begins kanakawa we learn so much about him before the story begins and mm. he changes a lot over the course of the movie but not any more than than the other characters, the other main characters. So I was really hung up on that the first time I watched it and thought it was pretty lopsided. You know, it's called Paprika, yet Kanakawa is the most well-developed character. And now I disagree. I think Kanakawa is probably the second most well-developed character behind the, you know, eponymous Paprika or, or her real-world alter ego, uh, Dr. Chiba. 
Right. Yeah. 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 And that is interesting because when I remember when you first brought that up, I was like, now you think of it or when you mention it, I do think he gets more time than the combo of Atsuko and Paprika. Like he like he's sort of the I would call him the protagonist, really. I guess is is he really the one that thrusts all the action? Because Paprika, no, is- I'm pretty sure it's mostly uh, Atsuko and Paprika that are really, really you know save the day at the end, and also are are more actively investigating the mm, disappearance true. of the you know the the machines or machine, the DC minis, the DC minis. Yeah, thank you for for reminding me of the name. Cause I'm probably gonna have to say it a lot. Um, yeah. Detective uh, Kanakawa, he's mostly just in his own dream state after visiting the spooky website. <laughs> and he's mostly just kind of figuring out his own past and his own trauma about his unfinished student film and that, you know, unsolved murder and, and everything. He does very little to actually contribute to driving the main narrative forward he's sort of just kind of off being his own character (laughs) (laughs) yeah i guess he has the most like uh character or has the biggest character arc but yeah he's not really propelling the story forward yeah he kind of intersects a little bit with with atsuka and i think they have just like a you know chase sequence here and there that actually does contribute to like the main plot line but for the most part Sort of, sort of relegated to his own sort of parallel story. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, speaking about the story itself, I thought this is a very interesting confluence of genres that is really very much my shit, uh, which is when sci-fi and fantasy start to really blur together. And I think uh, Paprika is a great example of that, where, you know, on the surface, they look like two uh different genres that could be at odds with one another. Think of like the aesthetic of Lord of the Rings versus the aesthetic of Star Wars. One is in like quote unquote medieval times. The other is, even though it's technically a long, long time ago, it's right. like the future. Right. Um, even though it is like very much a, a fantasy movie and not a sci-fi movie. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Where the, the bones are very similar and they both have this attitude that I, I glean to very uh, closely. It's like, you can kind of do whatever you want. Like now the rules of everyday life are thrown out the window and you can replace them with other things. All you just got to do is set them up in a way that's coherent and satisfying so that an audience can play along. But I think Paprika like kind of dissolves that distinction into almost being meaningless where it's both and neither at the same time because it keeps constantly just rushing back and forth between the two. I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I don't, I, I'm not picking up a lot of fantasy at all in there and I, i'd love to hear more about that because to me it feels like it's more of a distinction between hard sci-fi and you know soft sci-fi or yeah or not yeah. sci-fi not hard sci-fi or perhaps even like speculative fiction mm. in this case i mean certainly it's about technology and it's in the near future where you know techn- like certain technology is having a, a different impact on our lives than we in the you know, in real life or experiencing yet. And it, it definitely you know, stays grounded in that lane, but it's also sort of an adventure story. It's also very much a noir. Yeah. And there's so many genres happening all at once in this movie that it's certainly not hard sci-fi. If anything, it's, you know, softer sci-fi or speculative fiction wrapped up in noir. Where are you seeing fantasy in this? I guess the, in 
the the spirit of not everything has to be explained not everything like you said hard sci-fi where it's real strengths are is it does a lot of that work of grounding it in the in the in the technological in the material in like everything is kind of in lockstep and moving along children of man is something i think of really quickly or uh, the martian is another one i think of when i think of hard sci-fi where when i think of something like star wars like the force doesn't need to be explained in almost to a point where it, you may as well just call it magic. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I think in that sense, Paprika follows those kind of same rules where it's like, well, now why all of a sudden are all the dream shit out here? Why did the big bad become a giant nude Godzilla? Like th- th- you're never going to see them like, like a Christopher Nolan movie, like whip out the fucking chalkboard and like start doing equations for you because it doesn't matter. Like, it's just like we or you know, the, the bouncing in and out of the internet being real. This is really happening in here. Like with that, the bar lounge and stuff like that. Right. I, I think with what inception does where they sit down and they actually have a long scene of like, here's how all this shit works. That keeps it in the the space of harder sci-fi. This one, they're just, it's just not their concern. That's not what they're looking at. They're more uh, looking at how things, how it feels to be in this space, how, what the energy is moving back and forth in between these different senses of reality. So I think it feeds more into a a fantasy ethos than a sci-fi ethos. I'll accept that. It sounds like we just have a little bit of differing opinion on what yeah. really encapsulates one genre or another. But I Which would say course, this movie defies genre altogether. You already threw out like two or three other ones too. Altogether, yeah. This is a this is a fantastic example of something we're, we'll talk about a lot in our Pinocchio episode. But animation is not a genre. Animation is a medium. It's an art form, and uh folks the japanese are a lot better at treating it that way than we americans are and by a lot Um, oh yeah i mean this this movie came out now 17 years ago and if it came out today it would be the most innovative piece of american animation i I think yeah i mean the new spider-man movie are are competing with it but like paprika would be right up there oh yeah yeah definitely and for totally different reasons too yeah but yeah, uh, so I know one thing you wanted to talk about was the maximalist approach to storytelling in this movie, the way it uses the rules to break the rules. Uh, tell me more about that, Dan. So uh, even when I just said, it's like, oh, they don't whip out the chalkboard. There actually is one moment yeah. where they they stop and they do discuss rules. And they're not discussing even rules within the the rules of the world of the film or like how this wild shit is working. The only time they really stop is to talk about how cinema works and how uh, to create a visual experience. And I re- I'm really glad they keep it in that space of cinema. And like you said, like this isn't a genre. This is a medium that we're watching. And animation is very much couched within the greater art, uh, art movement that is cinema. Um, and that's really the only time that they start talking about rules because this movie is so like transparently in debt to uh, the tradition of cinema. I mean, you, you see, well, you know, the detective is a, uh, was once a filmmaker. You see his dreams involve a lot of, uh, there's like overt references to the posters are up in his dreams. Of oh yeah. Films that are probably yeah. from his childhood. Yeah, no, yeah, for sure. They've got from Russia with love, Tarzan, the greatest show on earth. And then what is the movie? where the lady breaks the guitar over the guy's head. I, oh, I meant, yeah, I don't know. What I meant to Google it, but it's been bothering me because that's also all four of those scenarios that he dreams of are just specific, 
like recreations of actual shots from movies that are all from like the 50s or mm-hmm. 60s. And then, you know, and then it plays very closely in tune with like, it's been said even of early cinema or when we were talking about in Hugo that like George Melies was trying to conjure up what dreams felt like. So it makes sense that like, I wouldn't be surprised if excellent filmmakers dream cinematically like that. I think I, we made a joke about that, about like Kurosawa or Kurosawa's film dreams. It's like, yeah, they kind of just look like really good movies. But then again, <laughs> Kurosawa probably just dreams in really good fucking movies. Yeah. Oh, and another reference in that same scene. Did you catch it? To Kurosawa? Yeah. No. So in, in the scene where, where with the 180 rule, Kanakawa is literally oh, he's dressed, dressed like Kurosawa. He's dressed like yeah. Kurosawa. Yeah. I, that's something I didn't notice the first time I watched it. And I did this time. Yeah, that, that was very cool. Yeah, um, and we're going to talk about it a lot. I mean, there's there's so many weird connections between this movie and then other movies that we're discussing on the pod, but mm-hmm. this movie shares weird bones with the Fablemans and yeah. they both begin <laughs> with like their characters who are, you know, teenage aspiring filmmakers seeing the greatest show on earth <laughs> and <laughs> discussing about how it's making dreams reality or maybe vice versa mm-hmm. and yeah, but it, but back on topic, you know, like just the fact that the movie stops in, in a very, very high paced movie. So much happens in 90 minutes in this movie, but we literally get the paprika sort of being mansplained about the yeah. 180 rule. <laughs> I thought Kanakawa, who like previous to this told her he doesn't like movies. He doesn't have time for movies. He doesn't care for movies. He doesn't understand movies. She drags him in to see the movie. And he's then explains to her uh, a, a pretty technical aspect of the cinematic language. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's just a perfect, even though they do pause and kind of take their time with it. I still view it as sort of this low hanging fruit that, that, that Cone plucked to give us this really, well, one, this really early highlight to Konakawa's backstory and his past, but also this like really, really, on the nose contradiction between who he is in his dreams versus how he presents himself in real life. Mm-hmm. And which is going to be, we're going to talk about a lot about this kind of the, the, that fissure, uh, that fissure between fantasy and reality. And uh, also I think there's, there's gotta be, I would, I would have to assume because those, those sections are not in the book. I've read this book as well and all the stuff about movie making not in the book so I have to assume that you know this is somewhat autobiographical on the part of Cohen himself so like he takes this time to like make sure we as the audience know that yeah 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 and I think that's I think that's pretty gorgeous yeah I didn't know that that's like the big uh thematic addition is that uh, the book isn't so much about cinema Right, right. And I I don't remember I don't remember a whole lot about the book. I know that there are a lot of differences, but the one that jumped out at me the most is that. Hmm. Huh. Yeah, that's that's actually really cool. Um but and that that gets into uh what I really like is that opening scene. And speaking of uh the greatest show on earth where it's like this this movie is just a giant carnival for yeah, 90 or a minutes. circus, yeah. Yeah, or a big circus is getting chucked at you. And and the thing is with the circus and with this movie is while it seems like fantastic, it seems like chaos, like it is tightly controlled. Yes. Like it's there's a ringleader who knows exactly what he's fucking doing every single second, like a like a director. 
And the only way that you can really throw the kitchen sink at the screen like that is if you have such a firm understanding of the rules that will keep an audience around where I think you mentioned this in previous episodes too, when talking about like Mad Max, which is similar where they're throwing goddamn everything at you. Oh yeah. But George Miller had the wisdom of like what the, what the audience needs to see, put it right in the dead fucking center, right in the crosshairs of the camera, because he understands that like there, even though he's trying to go gonzo, like there are rules that you still have to adhere to. Yeah, absolutely. And again, we're going to talk so much about how this movie is about blurring the lines between fiction and reality. And a circus or a carnival is a great example of something that is in real life. It's tactile. It's real. You can participate in it. But it's sort of like stretching the definition of quote unquote reality in the strictest terms, right? It's this little like a, a circus is such like a just a a sliver of the fantastical that you can actually be in the same room with. Right. Yeah. yeah, Where it's because I'm thinking I I was about to say it's like, oh, it's almost like theater. But I think circus is a little less a circus is less concerned with reality than theater is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, certainly. Like it's 100 percent spectacle. It's it's 100 percent just feats of human and animal kind that a normal person would never, ever do. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sorry if you didn't see the air quotes. <laughs> normal. Uh, I had to explain myself there, but yeah, I think uh, then we, then you've got a, you know the parade of all of these various uh, people creatures. Uh, there, there's at one point it's just a whole bunch of American icons, which we could probably tap into that in one way or another. Where you see like the Statue of Liberty just as part of it, and again, it's just like more of throwing everything at you all at once. Very circus-inspired music during that parade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Repeats, and every time I hear it, I just sort of, like, shrink a little bit because I know that that freaky-ass parade is coming. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, again, it's like so many things that we do in real life that blur the the line between reality and and fantasy. Uh, You know, movies circuses movies about circuses parades all, all this weird shit that we like to participate in to kind of feel bigger than we are um yeah and that uh speaking of like the giant parade and uh like the symbols of that and i was trying i was thinking about that and eventually i think i i came to this conclusion because there's you know just the absolute hodgepodge of symbolism coming at you and you're tempted to want to be like okay what does this mean why is he throwing this stuff together and then on top of it there's like nonsense dialogue a lot when they're kind of in the dreams. And at first I was like trying to like slow it down, read the dialogue, be like, okay, what, what, what are you trying to get at? What does that line mean? And eventually I think the point was just by sheer force of avalanche of all this shit. It's like, no, these are dreams. Like yeah, they, they might not mean jack shit. They're just like leftover stuff that your brain doesn't know what to do with. So they're just going to throw it all at a wall out of context. And now out of context, it doesn't make any sense to you anymore, but they're like, vague signifiers that you understand but when they're thrown together in this in this way it's like oh well now i don't know what to do with this anymore yeah and then the layers add on from there when before long i mean we we we're allowed to have a fairly firm grasp on it for the first like 15 20 minutes of the movie but as soon as shit starts to go haywire we are never allowed to trust that what we are seeing is real and oh, no. dream, or yeah. vice versa at no point point. and yeah and speaking of uh 
fiction, reality, the difference or the non-difference between the two, I think the uh, the character, well, the, t- the titular character of Paprika, I think is a great uh, distilled symbol of that, where Paprika, I mean, as I understand this with like my 2023 eyes, is she's an online avatar, essentially. Yeah. Um, or, yeah, similar to how like, I don't know, someone could, you know, my secret hidden Twitter where I use a different name and I tweet out my uh, actual Oh, what's the word that they use? Uh, yeah, my repressed conscious mind is actually mm-hmm. venting on my sneaky dark Twitter. I think Paprika as a character and representing Atsuko, not only what she wants to be, but I think more importantly, it's what she perceives other people want her to be as well. And you see those two different forces butting up against each other and creating all the conflict uh, that drives a lot of the story. Yeah, and I have... I mean, I guess I'll just throw my interpretation out there because, yeah, she definitely becomes... Well, I think that there's, first, the reason she has an avatar in the dream world to begin with is because what she's doing is illegal. Like, she's, she is uh, also stolen a... What is it? C uh, Mini? DC Mini, yeah. DC yeah. Mini. I, need I only remember it because it's, it's the only word that they say in English for the oh, Japanese yeah. translation. Yeah, for sure. So, like, <laughs> she has stolen a DC Mini. So, in theory, like, if someone back at the foundation is looking at the footage, they'll see Paprika and they won't see Atsuko. But she has created this sort of, like, generalized anime hot girl persona, <laughs> right? The the eternal manic pixie dream girl that we we like to conjure up sometimes. And the more I think about it and the more I watch it, when we kind of get this reveal that she is basically in love with Tokita Mm. and like their kind of melding of, of strengths or what really defeat Inui at the end. And I, I, suspect that you know we know that he is this sort of like neck beardy like kotaku (laughs) like like anime nerd right so like i like see the character of paprika as being like what she might assume is his ideal woman because because you've got like you've got like the other men around her really like not like the guy that's like psycho and like obsessed with her whose name i never remember he doesn't want her to be paprika he literally like removes paprika's skin from her Ugh. yeah it's mario asanai yeah dr asanai um but i think like at the end we like it's kind of lovely that at the end i believe we're in tokita's dream and when like when he sort of absorbs her into his robot body and births <laughs> that baby, it kind of grows up into right. That's a being, sentence being, that's normal to say, by the being, way. Being Atsuko again, like not looking like Paprika. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so I perceive that as like you know when when he sees her in his dreams, it's Atsuka. It's not. It's not Paprika. Mm, I see. I yeah. yeah. Whereas contrasting with Doctor Asanai, where he wants her to be well. She, he also wants her to be a Tsuko, but on his terms, like yeah, in the yeah. way that he wants her to be. P- where tends to a table with a butterfly diagram where he's like forcibly, he's molesting her, he's like sexually assaulting her and like literally like removes Paprika from her forcibly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where I, I think, yeah, it seems more like Takito, Takito, am I just saying Takito? Takita, Takita. <laughs> he 
Yeah, he he likes the the real Atsuko, but like he he accepts both. Like he he likes that that paprika is a part of her and wants to integrate the both those dual identities into one. Right, and I think that's kind of what the baby grows up to be is like all the all the all the things that you know Atsuka is in real life. You know, without without the all the artifice that she is like thought she needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think what's we're we're kind of leading into it where I think that's what's most clever thematically about this, or at least on this is now like the third or fourth time I've seen it, which, which I've found the most rich is like the confluence of dreams and the internet yeah, and how they, they kind of whirl around together more than I think we realize where, especially this was, this was made in 2006 where the internet's a very different place in 2006 than it is now. But this idea that we can go to a place and all the normal rules of the physical world are now out the window and have been replaced with a new set of rules. And we might not entirely understand how it all works, but we know at least how to interact with it. And we have this looseness of identity that we can play around with. And I think almost all, yeah, pretty much every character to some way or another kind of has this relationship to the DC mini and the dream world and consequently the internet world at the same time sometimes it gets really hard to figure out whether you're on the internet or if you're in the dream world oh yeah yeah i mean what what i said earlier when when detective kanakawa just sort of disappears into his own little dream world for most of the movie he hasn't put on a dc mini or anything like that he literally just visits a website yeah and he immediately gets like sucked into this dream world where he's hanging out in the bar from the shining yeah and uh to add to like you know more of his all of his dreams being cinema and we don't ever know for sure why that is like is someone is he is are his dreams also being invaded by Inui and was it Okanai or or Osanai or they um is that literally just like he's on the internet so now we're seeing like this visual interpretation of what it's like to go online and and lose your identity that way yeah just how the internet is consciousness altering where yeah um i don't know if you like how much you know about the history of the development of the internet but like it was made by a bunch of people who wanted to kind of recreate the experience of lsd like that Mm -hmm. is on the minds of the early adopters and the creators of what the internet would eventually be so like the idea that this is a consciousness altering technology is not foreign to the people who designed this right well and you could probably say the same thing about this movie as well <laughs> and you Fair. can say that about dreams yeah you can say that about film like the it's a confluence of three things that like really naturally sit together when you think about it yeah absolutely and i, I love how that is also a logical extension on what he said in perfect blue like perfect blue i want to say is like 1997 or something like that and in perfect blue we've got this you know celebrity who's participating in social media and is being obsessed about by some like you know like psycho basement dwelling incel and eventually you know uh makes good on that and brings brings his online obsession into real life and that is fucking wild but that, that, yeah, that's, that, that, that Cone made a whole movie about that in 1997. 26 years ago. Holy shit. And like now that's like some that's a concept that literally like anyone who's like 
younger Gen X or younger will be very familiar with those concepts now, right? Well, yeah, I do Back wonder then, in 97, yeah, if that was like understood as just like a, a high concept, fantastic thriller or people right. were like, oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, of course. But, th but then in this movie, he, you know, this is 2006. He was probably, you know, making it for, you know, in the few years before that. He really did again predict just to the extent that we would live on the internet because when he was making this movie yeah like live journal and myspace and that sort of thing those were those were popular but people weren't spending all of their time there like uh, corporations weren't spending all of their time with their consumers on those platforms and you pointed this out this movie came out the same year that twitter launched and that facebook as we know it with like the kind of the timeline like actually like scrolling down a whole wall of everyone's shit rather than visiting um mm -hmm. individual profiles that's when that feature launched i think you were saying yeah and again like he wasn't making this movie in 2006 he's probably making it in like 2002 three four five again he very very presciently like predicted what the internet would become and how our identity our identities would sort of be harvested for powerful men's means yeah yeah and that that's actually it was an interesting ironically it was a tweet i saw either yesterday or the day before where two thousand or the internet of this time would be also fundamentally different in the technology that's being used to access it where uh, by 2006, I would have to double check when the iPhone officially came out, but at least was not in common usage by 2006. Uh, the internet was somewhere where you had to go into a room with a computer, turn it on, and that's how you accessed the internet. The moment you turned your computer off and stepped out of that room, you were no longer in the internet. It was gone. It was this, it was this discreet place away. But now, ever since the rise of smartphones, the internet is everywhere. So similar to this film, it's like, the consciousness altering aspects of the internet is now ubiquitous. Like no matter where you're going, you're dealing with that instead in like, you know, the nineties and the early two thousands, it was, the internet was a place that you went and now it's no, the it's internet. Where you live. You. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's just where you live at all. Yeah. Times. And just the concept in this movie where we we're not told this explicitly, but we can pretty much put it together that if you're connected to the internet in some way, like even if you're just, sitting in front of your computer like detective kanakawa is you can be invaded by someone with this you know hacked dc mini hmm. now imagine how frightening that is if everyone was carrying the internet around with them at all times <laughs> really well, that, isn't that like essentially what happens when shit goes off the rails where the the world of the dc mini and the dream world uh starts to infect everywhere yeah, yeah, and they didn't even have smartphones to harvest that power. <laughs> and I, Man, it, it, that makes me so sad that that Cohen would would die shortly after this, and he died pretty young. And he would have had so much to say about the world that you know we've lived in since two thousand six. Well, and also his movie that he would have came out with this year would have predicted what the internet was like in twenty thirty. So, like, I just would be curious what the internet's going to be like in about ten years. So it'd be nice for him to tell us. Oh man, so sad. Rest in peace, Satoshi Kon. Absolute genius. Uh, um, hopefully, go ahead. But, sorry. Oh yeah, but but backing up just a slight bit, because um, I, I do think it, it's kind of a fun pet thing that's nice to just get really high and think about. And it's the uh, you know how I'm saying that, that there's a tight relationship between the internet and dreams in this film, and I think just thematically, I think it works pretty naturally. 
So what do you think? What's your personal uh, bong rip theory? What are dreams doing when you're dreaming at night? What's going on up there? Is the uh, is the repressed conscious mind venting? Sure. Well, let me see. I'm trying to think of like some dream, like recurring dreams that I've had and trying to make sense of them. But oh, see, I don't have those. I don't have recurring dreams. Oh, interesting. I think, man, I think it's just that there's there's so much that is in our subconscious mind or unconscious mind. And there's, you know, we we actually we don't get a whole lot of it that actually reaches conscious thought. And we have a lot of filters when we're conscious. There's certain things that, you know, I know that there's like the kind of the old adage, like, you know, don't think about a pink elephant right now. And you're now you're thinking about a pink elephant, but no, I think, I think we don't give our brains enough credit as like the filter that they are to protect us from some things that we are thinking about, but don't want to be thinking about. Mm -hmm. And I think when you're asleep, you know, those filters mostly just shut down and you get to be met with, whatever needs to bubble up and i i mean that's probably not super out there or like a groundbreaking line of thought but it's uh i think uh, i think they reveal a lot about our desires about our fears and i think it's difficult to actually parse out which is which like mm. what, what are the things that I'm dreaming about that I want? What are the things that I'm dreaming about that I'm afraid of? What are the things that I'm dreaming about that I want to actively suppress? What are the th- dreams that I'm thinking about that I want to actively pursue? Mm. And uh, I think that's a, a, a pretty good segue into what we really should talk about and how this movie has layers of dreams and mm. dreams in different you know, the different definitions of the word dream itself, like in the aspirational Mm. sense, and then in the, you know, unconscious uh, theater of the mind sense, and how uh, this movie does really actually dig deep into dreams, as far as like people's goals. Yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, yeah, before we get into that, I do want to talk about that a little bit more. But what about you, Dan? What's your, uh, you know, just, uh, (laughs) just drop just just, uh, you know, uh, Dropped a, a few uh, a few hits of LSD into your eyeball, and uh, and start to pontificate about dreams. Uh, no, mine's not too far off from yours, actually. Where, um, so yeah, the the your conscious mind or the thing that's going on, like your your interior your interior monologue, is limited. Like it, it can only think about so many things at uh, at once, and there you're getting hit with way more stimulus than that at all times. Like I don't know, I'm sitting here right now. I guess my feet are kind of cold. This room probably has a smell. Um, I don't know the the touch of my shirt. Like I don't notice all those things when I'm talking, but those are all happening. My my brain is taking that in, but it's just deciding to not worry about that at the moment because there are just more important things I'm focused on, like your lovely, lovely face. And I I think like after 24 hours or not 24 hours, but after like you know 16 hours of being conscious you've been hit with all the stimuli and then you've also been hit with like your reaction to all of it subconsciously. And then when you're asleep, it's sort of like a sorting out mechanisms of like, okay, here's all these signs and symbols that, that hit your body that you now are trying to do something with. And now it's just kind of crashing at you randomly, which I think like the big carnival esque like parade, I think kind of represents that very well to me. Uh, 
where it's all these things that like if you have been focusing on absolutely everything that hits your conscious mind that's what it would kind of feel like and like we just can't do that we would not succeed as sentient human beings if we were trying to do that so when you're sleeping it's it's sort of a, an exercise in that so i i i tend to not mystify what dreams are as much as your average person i think it's more of just like a biological like dumping system more than anything and it can reveal the things that you're not thinking about the things that you're choosing to ignore and it'll bring that up because now everything has the the same opportunities as anything else to come to your conscious waking mind and so you can find things in there but for the most part i don't think it's like i don't know you're not learning that you secretly want to fuck your aunt or something because right. you have a dream where your aunt is naked in a dream which i have not done sorry aunt sandy Wow, you got really specific about which aunt it was. <laughs> I appreciate that, Dan. Aunt Sandy, I'm gonna I'm gonna send this to Aunt Sandy. <laughs> oh, are you an aunt or an ant guy? An ant is an insect. Oh, so oh, good aunt. Yeah, I, aunt. I fully agree with that one. Yeah, yeah, aunt. There's there's a whole extra letter in there that is a good clue to how it should be pronounced. I, I always sit on aunt rhymes with flaunt. Yeah, there's a great episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm where, for some reason, Larry David has to be the one that goes and prints out the programs for a memorial service for a funeral. Mm -hmm. And it's not his fault at all, but there was a, a typo in there. And because Larry was the one that was responsible for getting the print, them printed out, everyone blames him because in the program it doesn't say beloved aunt it says beloved cunt <laughs> and that's the plot of the whole episode i i feel like i need to watch curb your enthusiasm i think I would it's enjoy it. oh man the final season is going to happen in 2024 and it is <laughs> one of one of the all-time great sitcoms yeah it's 12th or 13th season i think but it's been going since 1999 it's just you know he'll go several years without making a season so um yeah it'll it's uh yeah they're on their 24th year but only like 12 or 13 seasons okay. in that maybe that's, that's why i thought maybe it was done i was like oh it it started so long ago it has to be done but anyways uh not curb your enthusiasm but paprika and dreams oh let's try and get back on oh yeah let's let's talk about like aspirational dreams in ah. this movie because um i wonder i wonder if in you know, the Japanese language, if there are similar words that mean both of those things. Oh, if that's a pun there too. Right, right. Because I think a lot of these characters do have aspirational dreams that get explored quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like particularly with Kanakawa, like his unconscious dreams are his aspirational dreams. Like he's dreaming about this movie he didn't get to make that he wants to make. He dreams about this unsolved murder he didn't solve. We've got um you know tokita and like his him and him and atsuka have their you know potentially like world saving invention that they're they want to bring to the world you've got uh you've got inui who he has a personal aspirational goal of getting a new body that can walk mm -hmm. uh, and like so on and so forth like and uh, even like his name is like another pun almost like a homophone for a word that means like listlessness or dissatisfaction, right? Ennui. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I think we get to know 
ev- just about every character is just a little bit of their ennui, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and that's interesting how yeah in how this movie is about how dreams interject in reality. Literally, um, it's also metaphorically. It's like how these people these their dreams, their aspirations, their uh, idealized states of how they are themselves and where they want to be are also acting on reality uh, for good or ill, where you can see that in, uh, I, I really like all pretty much all the people that are working on the DC mini, like very much remind me of like Silicon, like the way they were talking about it is like how you hear about Silicon Valley people talking about new technology right now, where every single new piece of technology that comes out, it's going to be like a disruptor revolutionary like we're like this is going to change the way that we do x or what yeah yeah, like Uh, literally that part of dream scenario that you didn't like oh (laughs) about literally this yeah 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 yeah. um and it this goes to show that like dreams are not necessarily a good thing like they're they're uh an ethically neutral thing to have um it, it depends. And I think they talk about it over and over where um, that's like the biggest flaw in Tokita's uh, character, where it's like he's very much one of those classic sci fi scientists of like, just because we can, does it mean that we should? Right. Um, and he he's just so obsessed with like the dream of like making the cool new gadget of making and probably because he grew up watching TV and movies about like the inventor character and like the that like absent-minded professor type that just like is a genius, but is misunderstood and makes these beautiful things and, and helps the world as a result in the end. And everyone hugs and it's, it's all okay in the end. But like in reality, like technology isn't, I'm a believer that technology in and of itself is morally neutral. It's how we're like what it's being used and disposed for and the, the, the cultural context that it's being applied to in the real world that determines whether it's going to be good or ill. Like, I mean, we had a movie come out earlier this summer about exactly that, the nuclear energy, which not only can create, you know, cheap, reliable, renewable energy for whole nations so we can get off oil. It can also nuke the fuck out of people. So it's like the same technology is morally neutral. It's how we use it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is that's a very good segue into something I know you wanted to talk about in that we have sort of the classic lifespan of a new technology where you've got you know you've got Takeda he's this like idealist he you know this optimist who made this beautiful thing like his closest colleagues want to use his invention to heal people's minds mm-hmm. like you called him a glossy-eyed inventor right mm-hmm. and uh just like those early you know LSD using internet you know worldwide web inventors and then eventually you're going to have you know, uh, you know, capitalist society is going to grab hold of it and figure out how to monetize it and use it for ill. So uh, talk to me a little bit more about how, you know, Dr. Inwe kind of represents that control of capital. Yeah. And ill, I mean, I, I personally, I guess I would say is ill. Uh, I guess I would more say it's going with the flow of sorts where um and you can even see this i I think using 2006 as like kind of a pivoting point on internet culture i think is a very interesting accidental uh theme where this is sort of the start of the enclosing of what you can call like the wild west period of the internet uh where people who 
people didn't understand how to monetize this thing yet, essentially, is the long and short of it. And eventually we did figure out, like, now we have things like the attention economy. We have, you know, getting uh, YouTube, YouTube, depending on your content, you either get boosted on the algorithm all the way down to demonetized. Um, you know, there, there's real financial stakes for how big you are on Twitter when you're at a certain size. Um, and this all affects the way that we project ourselves on the Internet and how we understand how other people behave on the Internet, which then, you know, I, I always get I get so fucking annoyed at the the lines like, oh, Twitter's not a real place. <laughs> gotcha. Where it's like, yeah, of course, we know you can't like go to Twitter. You can't take a plane and go to Twitter. But like what happens on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, on YouTube, on on the Internet has very real consequences in real life. Like. It is a real place in that it is real in its consequences, which is shown here in this movie, too, where like these dream worlds and these Internet worlds, they have real consequences in meat space world where now, I mean, our, our understanding of how like people behave, I would say, is like what meat space world. Yeah. Dude, he's called like real life meat space world. <laughs> like, once we're fully in the metaverse and we're all you know, just uh, bits and bytes flying around, you know, uh, 12, 12 G cellular internet. Uh, <laughs> it's going to like only the richest people are going to be able to visit meat space world. <laughs> meat space. <laughs> right next to meat spin, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and uh, the carnal pleasures that will be available to the only the extremely wealthy in meat space world. Like meat spinning. Uh, but, <laughs> but anyways, um, it shows how these things that can be designed for, you know, human freedom, human community. That's what the Internet was first designed for. It's like, oh, we'll all be connected. And that's what every fucking new social media platform says, like, oh, greater connecting the world. Mm. Uh, but we see the results of that. Right. Like we're not. That's we're more divided than we ever have before. We're, we're in our little echo chambers, whether you think it or not. Like, yeah, like we're all in our own little corners yelling back at each other about how right we are and how the other echo chamber is the dumb one. And, you know, the, the destruction of actual human organizations and communities has only been accelerated pretty much since then. And I, I actually and mostly of the opinion that it's not the internet, it's the handling of these uh, technologies that has accelerated that because these are trends that were going on before 2006 of, you know, ba basic like defunding of the public, uh, the public sphere of things becoming more privatized of communities becoming more isolated, more alienated from one another. So the internet is just an, a further expression of that, or at least the internet that we currently have. So, you know, maybe in a different world, yeah, the internet could have been this cool LSD trip for everyone. And we all would have held hands and sung Kumbaya, but like, that's just, that was never going to happen in this world. And I think a lot of the, the weird Silicon Valley tech ghouls at their best were naive and it only takes one cynical actor like a Dr. Sejiro to understand where this is going, understand how to monetize it, and then start nudging in that direction and then become a giant, scary shadow Godzilla guy with a nub for a dick. <laughs> He's like, legs, I have legs again. Let's like, use them dick. to kick Tokyo. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's no junk, no junk on either on either of them at the end. I appreciated the no junk, at least on Atsuko, because she started as a literal child. And I'm like, I don't know if we need to, I don't know if we need to draw that. Right, right. I mean, she, she, <laughs> uh, you know, 50 story woman, 
Yeah, once uh, you get to a full woman, you can give her her parts, but you should have given uh, Sejuro, give him his dong. Give him his monster kaiju dong. Wow. So, like, not only did this movie probably completely inspire Inception and maybe the social network and several others, but also we're learning that it was a huge inspiration on Barbie. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I, I see the connective. <laughs> Barbie starts with a gigantic genitalist barbie oh yeah i didn't <laughs> I, did, I didn't think about that yeah um man this nice movie pa- paprika is probably the movie that we've talked about on concessions where there's the most sort of just like common threads between this movie and other movies that we've talked about which i guess makes good sense because this is a movie about movies uh, yeah very true dreams and the internet which you know especially Movies with internet sensibilities are only becoming more and more common because more and more people have internet sensibilities. And when they make art, it would start to look like that. And this movie, though, I got to I got to really, really just just knock on Inception some more. I know I started <laughs> the episode where, you know, where this movie. Um, you know, let, let's just say it's clear that Inception took some inspiration from paprika but to the extent that it did is wild i mean there's like the a centerpiece action scene in this movie where a hallway Mm. a a hotel hallway is morphing and shifting with the dream logic and a character runs up onto the wall to like thwart her pursuers Yeah, yeah like it's not even just that like oh it's about entering dreams like no, there's like actual images lifted directly from it. Literally, like this movie has a part where like a, like whole cities are like inverting and going into like basically like a, a black hole, like in the middle void, and a city is like folding onto itself. Like there, there are specific images from this movie that Inception just went ahead and borrowed. And like I said, that's tr- also true of Perfect Blue, where like there's parts of requiem for a dream and black swan that darren aronofsky took directly from perfect blue there's several other movies from around that time period that did it but my god if inception isn't like an actual ripoff of paprika (laughs) which i'm not hugely opposed to in concept because like the idea of like oh we're trying to do paprika but live action and american i'm like okay like that can be very cool why not sure but yeah it misses some of the fantastic elements that make it the most yeah. interesting to me. L- listen, Paprika doesn't have a monopoly on like characters entering other yeah, dreams. Yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street has that. Yeah. Enough. yeah. But um yeah, but you know, even Dream Scenario that we talked about has like hella shades of paprika as well. Right. Um but yeah, just gotta throw it out there. I, <laughs> I, I see you, Christopher Nolan. I see, you you know what you've done, sir. <laughs> Um, though I'm sure he would admit it too. I'm sure he's not like hiding it. I would have to. No. Look, I, I didn't look that up to see if he ever admitted that or would. Talk you know, I think Inception was literally just like. Was it like? Oh no, Inception was like maybe three or four years after Paprika. It wasn't like immediately following. I don't think it was like oh uh, nine. If I remember right, I'm looking that up. Yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to know. Twenty ten. Yeah. 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 He was definitely thinking about Paprika here and there. Well. Other than Inception, <laughs> what <laughs> movies do you recommend for fans of Paprika? 
So if you want, I'm sticking to my normal format. If you want something from before I was born in the year of our Lord, 1992. It's a good one. Also from a cinematic master. Uh, he also was playing with the ideas of reality and fiction, constantly complicating it to the point where I don't even know if he was sure by the end what's real and what's fake because I don't think he cared. Um, that would be Orson Welles' F for fake. Uh, have you seen that one? I forget. I have not. Ah, oh, it's excellent. It like, it's one of my favorite weird micro genres where it's a documentary that kind of stops caring whether or not it's true, and it like it, it signals that to the audience too, and it starts playing around with like, oh, you're watching a documentary and you think this is like some primary source material, but like, documentaries are narrativized nonfiction fiction, like. They're choosing to put things in the frame and take things out and order things in a particular way so that you get a message across. And like, that's how fiction works. And F for fake, like really leans into that. Yeah, got it. Got it. Okay, well, I'll do the same thing and do a movie from before I was born as well. So if you enjoyed Paprika, I recommend Definitely. If you haven't seen it, I mean, it would be weird if you're like a super like big movie fan. You haven't seen The Shining, but oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Cone like in the opposite direction, where Cone drew some obvious inspiration from The Shining, and you know, li- literally recreated some moments from The Shining mm-hmm. in Paprika. But I think really interestingly, Kubrick uh, in in Paprika, what we talked we talked about earlier about how the characters explain. Um, the 180 rule in cinema and then violate it to sort of create some disorientation, some delineation from reality, some dread, that sort of thing. The Shining is full of spitting in the face of cinematic convention in order to disorient the audience. And um, yeah, Paprika points at it and uses it as a great example of what it's talking about in that scene. And yeah, I mean, if, if I'm going to say that Inception is a ripoff of <laughs> Paprika, I got to say that Paprika is a little bit of a ripoff of The Shining. I like Paprika more than I like The Shining. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, wow. But definitely, um, you know, Cone was a big fan of Kubrick. It inspired by would be a good uh, Obviously a Kubrick fan, for sure. Yeah. What's your next recommendation, Dan? Oh, man. So if you like freaky weirdo anime shit where they're just totally in the spirit of we have a frame and we can put things in it and there are no rules, check out Mind Game uh, from uh, Masaki Yasua or Yuasa from two years before Paprika. It is formally more inventive, um, at least with the direct aesthetic that he's throwing on there. There is elements of... uh, live action film in this anime there are elements of rotoscoping there are elements of traditional anime it's all just like completely just slapped together and flapped together it's also way more way more violent way more gruesome way more explicit sort of like in a ralph bakshi way i guess i would say yeah uh, has that sensibility but also has a sensibility of just you genuinely there are a few films where I've had less of an idea of what was going to happen next or what was going to be on screen at any given moment. Awesome. Yeah, no, I'm sold, man. I, I, we, let's throw it in our queue. We should, uh, we should cover mind game. Uh, it's a movie I haven't seen, but I'm actually just from hearing that little blurb. I'm, I'm very excited to watch it. You ready to play some mind games? 
of course. <laughs> and uh, you know, the next is is it's just simple and straightforward. I mean, if you haven't seen Perfect Blue, you, you need to oh, see yeah, Perfect yeah. Blue. More even if you tone. even if you didn't like Paprika, like I mean, I'm I'm biased, Dan. I think actually you might disagree with me, but I think uh, Perfect Blue is like on such a higher level than paprika or most other animated features so i'm slightly biased because this was my first satoshi Kon film that i saw yeah yeah and that, that makes perfect sense but i think even if you didn't like paprika like let's say paprika was too surreal too absurd for you too high paced too maximal you know um as we talked about Perfect Blue has extremely different vibes, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. and it's far more of a far more of a straightforward narrative. Even though it does have some moments of kind of freaky shit and some some of the surreal, but it's definitely got more of a relatable hook to it, and a little bit. Um, even though it it is very sinister, it's scary, it's uh, it's violent emotionally. It does still have more of like um almost like a Western feel of like how narrative usually functions in movies. Yeah. I'll say. yeah, I would say so in that sense. Yeah. And definitely give it a shot. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a lot of people's favorite movie. It's Darren Aronofsky's favorite movie straight up. <laughs> um, and yeah, if you haven't seen it, but you've seen Paprika, what the fuck are you doing? See perfect blue. Oh, says so the guy who saw perfect blue and then stopped. I mean, I really want to see Tokyo Godfather's, Oh, it's a good Christmas movie. Now's a good time. Well, it's playing. It's I either just missed it or it's about to play at like you know in in major cinemas. I think either Regal or AMC. They do a a, a cone fest. Yeah, yeah. Like every year, basically. Um, Paprika. Uh, we'll we'll release this episode in February when uh, Paprika will will be in theaters later that week to make sure people have a chance to go see it and everything uh, on the big screen if they listen to this episode and are interested. Doing a little hyping up for it. Well, that just about does it for another episode of Concessions. I hope you enjoyed it. I did. I'm Jared. And I'm Dan. And don't let your memes stay dreams. The 24-bit eggplant will be analyzed. The dream I had yesterday and today. The dense forest turns into a shopping district. The happy and mundane world will vent their anger. This is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful wife. How did I get here? If I knew ahead of time when Rob would die, I don't think that I could tell him. And I might be a Highlander, I might be an immortal because I haven't died. And I'm paranoid that I'm an android with synthetic memories. What if these are my beliefs? What if these are my beliefs? I sat under the ceiling fan and pondered the eternal, and then the infinite. 
And I thought of Chris McCandless trying to live in it. And I thought of people who get tattoos to prove that they too could last forever. Like these two imperfect hands could ever be capable of a grasp of the better. Like sticks of imperial margarine. I built a mud hut on the margins. And then I marched in with a whole code of ethics typed in Martian on tattered parchment before departure on a battered starship. I used Harry Potter's wand as a conductor's baton when I choreographed the huddled mass of Rat Fink's groupthink. Ask about it. If I wrote the greatest rap song, I wouldn't let you hear it. I wouldn't let you hear it. I wouldn't let you hear it. If I wrote the greatest rap song, I wouldn't let you hear it. I wouldn't let you hear it. I wouldn't let you hear it. If I wrote the greatest rap song, I wouldn't let you hear it. If I wrote the greatest rap song, I wouldn't let you hear it. If this was the greatest rap song, you wouldn't have heard it. What? You wouldn't have heard it, what? You wouldn't have heard it, what?